Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We are in the midst, as I always say, of a discussion on substance use or misuse disorders. Really, it's called substance use disorders. According to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but really it represents misuse because most of these substances wouldn't be in the manual unless they caused some sort of problem. Uh, thus, it is a matter of more a matter of misuse than use. Uh, we've run the list of the biggies, uh, the top substances, so to speak, misused or abused in the United States. Uh, and therein we find numerous substances, including stimulants such as methamphetamine. We find opiates. Uh, we find nicotine. Uh, and to many surprise, we also find cannabis. Cannabis would be uh, known by many other more common or colloquial names, uh, goes by such as uh, pot, um, weed, etc., etc. I won't go into all of that, uh, but it's there. What uh, we are attempting to, do, however, do by identifying, one, <laughs> that cannabis is on the list, secondly, explain why it's on the list, which we have done thus far, uh, by discussing the symptoms of cannabis use disorder, including dependence, uh, which would be an addiction, which would be both psychological and with also some physical dimension. In hopes, we did all that, in hopes that we could at least call attention to the fact that for certain individuals, not one, but plural, grouping of people, persons, cannabis can become a problem. It can have both psychological dimensions as well as physical dimensions that cause it to be a problem in terms of its effect. Uh, to admit that, to acknowledge that, is so important, uh, if only because if we don't acknowledge it as a problem, many people are going to, one, run the risk of getting, unfortunately, addicted, uh, possibly out of ignorance, although I could question that, many would question that. Uh, you have to know, anytime you use a substance to avoid dealing with reality, or in dealing with reality, use a substance to somehow allay some of the uh, uh, consequences, the emotions, uh, the, the stress associated with dealing with reality, you run the risk of wanting to do it too much. Uh, reality doesn't go away. Uh, how we manage it <laughs> probably dictates more or less how well not only do we manage it, but in that cope and adapt. Uh, if you're feeling overwhelmed, <laughs> simply put, you can back off a bit. Take it easy. Don't push. Don't try to do things that, for whatever reason, the symptoms, uh, indicants of the problem, or the nature of whatever you're doing being a problem, they're trying to tell you something. It's not good for you. 
Now, if you continue to insist on doing it, then you could do other things to try to manage it besides take a substance to just remedy or alleviate the symptoms. You're not fixing the problem in essence, you're treating the symptoms. Any substance, psychoactive substance, that makes you feel good runs at risk of psychological dependence. Because it is psychoactive, it has some effect on your body, however, on your body directly, which then would suggest that it has some potential to be physiological. Now you can say, well, it's not a lot, or our bodies can tolerate a lot, as in it's not a lot as in effect or amount taken correlating to you know, the consequences, not the, only the positive effects, but the potential for negative. But the body can tolerate many substances in large amounts, and unfortunately, <laughs> that's what makes them addictive because the body gets used to them so readily so that when you quit using them, you go through withdrawal. Oh, this isn't going to harm me. If it was going to harm me, it would have already done it. Wrong. Your body has just an amazing ability to tolerate whatever the substance is. Such would go with cannabis. Now, that's not, again, always the case for, again, this certain group of persons or peoples uh, that I mentioned on the front end of today's podcast. Uh, you might have a more immediate effect. You can, uh, depending on concentration, potency, sort of variables or considerations. Um, possibly anybody could have a hallucinogenic experience. Why do I use the word hallucinogenic? We've discussed in prior podcasts. That's what cannabis is categorized as, a hallucinogen, which means it alters not only your perception, but it also creates false reads. <laughs> you think you see things that aren't there. You believe things, as with delusional, which is not necessarily hallucinogen or hallucination, but it goes along with it. It it's, goes in that same sort of way that hallucinations and delusions are part of psychoses. It goes in that same direction. Should, should I say you could become psychotic on pot? Yeah, well, by definition, who's the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual? If you have hallucinations then generally speaking, those fall in the category of psychoses. Now, it does say if it is substance-induced versus organic or caused by otherwise somewhat more natural, uh, biological or sort of biochemical state in the person, condition in the person, it's a little different, if not a lot different, but... When you're psychotic, you're psychotic. When you're hallucinating, you're hallucinating. <clears throat> Whether you, your body naturally did that to you through some sort of disease process or models such as uh, genetics, the progression of the disease, uh, those diseases that would fall in the category of psychoses, or whether you do that to yourself by taking a substance that mimics that or causes that effect, it nonetheless has happened. And the good news, I suppose, is, well, when the trip is over, <laughs> when, when we come down, maybe we will feel that way. That's possible. 
but it's also possible it may have more long-term, again, deleterious sort of effects. It's a problem. It's, you can't dismiss it. You can't say it's safe, <laughs> especially if it isn't. And people who are ignorant might believe that and otherwise use it and unfortunately be one of those who either gets a uh, high potent, potency uh, sort of experience uh, or maybe over the long haul, um, chronic use could have more long-term effects. Uh, the disease model, whether it's physical or psychological, can progress and uh, they find themselves meeting the criterion for a substance use disorder, which, again, we've covered in prior podcasts. It also is difficult, creates additional difficulty, makes it difficult to encourage somebody to get treatment. Denial being part of, again, any good addiction, if there is such a thing. It's hard to convince some people, even in the face of obvious symptoms, evidence of their problem, that they got a problem. But if you go along the, uh, this way of sort of being dismissive, more culturally speaking, or more generally speaking, of any possibility of problem associated with pot, it seems to me that you're just going to double down on that. You're just going to encourage more of the denial, the avoidance, the irresponsibility, which really translates in regards to today's podcast of them not seeking help. There is help available. It's not medicinal, necessarily, uh, medication assist, as it might be with opiates, suboxone, uh, there are medicines you can take, though, that would treat the condition that otherwise you're using the pot for, which, again, suggests more of a psychological, I need it. Why? Because of the stress, because maybe you do have an organic condition. Uh, we call it comorbidity or dual diagnosis. Many people who have substance abuse or misuse problems, use problems, use disorder, also have associated behavioral health concerns independent of the substance use or preceding. <laughs> they legitimately have depression. It's a clinical phenomenon. It's diagnosable, and they treat it with pot or whatever the substance of choice might be. There are medicines that are designed to treat it, that are safer, that you can manage more, that might have, hopefully, would have less harmful side effects, either in the immediacy of using them or, again, uh, as a consequence of using them. You should see someone. <laughs> you could find a medicine to treat that primary condition better the other behavioral health problem, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, better. Uh, and that way you're just adding to a problem by adding or at least increasing the chances of an additional secondary problem. Again, comorbidity. Again, 
this idea of, oh, now instead of only one diagnosis, you have two, dual, dual diagnoses. So there is help, but there's also psychological counseling, help dealing with stress. <laughs> Maybe somebody just looks at you and says, you know, you should take a break, take a day off, don't push yourself so hard. Maybe you should learn to relax. Maybe your other condition, if it is dual diagnosis, you're not treating it in the most efficacious, effective manner as possible. Research, again, indicates a combination of medicine as well as psychotherapy is best to treat most of the presenting conditions in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, particularly what they used to call Axis I disorders, which are the primary medical, psychological counseling concerns. You've got all kinds of secondary concerns that go into it, situational, circumstantial, that can go along with it, that you might address clinically, but the, the biggies, the headliners, so to speak, that are in the manual. So what's this got to do with today's podcast? Because all of that is about treatment. And, and in essence, that's the best philosophy, or at least foundationally, the, the theoretical, I guess, baseline, again, foundation for good counseling, good medication services, to recognize there is both psychological and physiological variables, to be able to flesh out what might be pre-existing conditions and make sure those are also being treated properly, to address lifestyle, coping strategy, coping skills, uh, not mentioned in today's podcast, have in prior podcasts, trauma through the course of one's life, situations occur that are traumatizing, probably to everyone, maybe not in the same degree or to, again, extent, but all those represent loss, struggle, legitimate threat to one's existence, physically, psychologically, and we have to work through them. However, the body's primary defense, protection, when you don't know how to work through them, the resources aren't available to work through them, is to, again, deny them, run away from them, and hence use substances <laughs> to assist one to feel better, to escape. Pretty simple, pretty basic. But if you're going to treat then any of these conditions, particularly cannabis use, you have to understand how it's connected because it serves a purpose and function. It's just maladaptive, which just basically means it not only doesn't help or isn't the best way to go about addressing it, but it actually harms or hurts in the long run. Right now, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, 
we are engaging in level 0.5, according to, again, the American Society of Addiction Medicine's treatment matrix, early intervention. It's education. Hopefully, my listeners, you who are listening to the podcast, aren't presently intoxicated or or at risk of going through withdrawal on cannabis. Hopefully, you don't have any sort of biomedical conditions that predispose you to the use of cannabis or that go along with comorbidity, your use of cannabis. Hopefully, you don't have, again, within that same sort of way of thinking, other access one or Primary behavioral health concerns, standalone, headlining, headliner concerns to contend with. Hopefully, we don't have to measure your readiness for change because you've already, hopefully, either acknowledged, wait a minute, there's maybe something not so good about turning to anything to escape reality or help me deal with reality. Maybe I should just work on making certain. That doesn't mean that you can't, or again, there's not legitimate medicinal applications, medicines to help, which are chemical. Manufactured, yes, but they are chemical. And hopefully in their manufacturing, better designed than even the more organic, which is the THC, and that's one of the... uh, Biggest arguments for tea, was all organic. Yes, but all chemicals are organic. If they weren't, they wouldn't be on earth. We wouldn't be able to create them. We can, again, they're synthetic in the sense that we put two together that otherwise we have not yet found in a natural sort of state together. But if they have an affinity or if they have an ability to be put together, it's all organic. So it's kind of a moot point in some way. But we don't have to worry about convincing you, maybe uh, pot isn't good for you, but maybe we just need to warn you on the front end. If you happen to be a little more liberal, and that would just be open to, that's all I mean by that, in your perspective to the use of cannabis, maybe we should just give you the info, present the science, as we spoke of in last podcast, so you can make an informed decision. Why would I want to lie to you? Hold back information. Misrepresent data. It doesn't help. You're smart. You can figure it out. You're empirical. Humans are designed to be empirical. It's in our nature to be empirical. We have to work really hard to be stupid. We can be stupid. Usually it's this idea of, again, trauma, threat, stress, existence, That makes us all stupid because we try to figure out ways to avoid it, run away from it rather than properly contend with it. If it's adaptive, it's going to bring more life, good life, better life, best life, quantitatively more life. If it's not, it's going to lead to an early grave. You're going to be miserable along the way. You're not addressing it properly. Are the things, again, that are beyond your control? Certainly, things that are genetic, things that are inherited predispositions, again, to disease and disorder. There's even more so sociological factors that make it really hard to be healthy, even if there is a choice. But in the end, who's responsible for you? You are. And I'll help (laughs) if you want to include me. But that's what I'm doing today, early intervention. 
Hopefully there is no then otherwise risk for relapse or continued use, although not having a use or misuse problem might suggest you've never really considered it, right? Because you've not had a problem. And usually then the support system, as much as it could be risky, and the ASAM, again, matrix puts under that dimension, the sixth dimension of living environment, a risky support system. Who's to argue that the world today isn't but risky for all of us? Is there sanity out there? It's hard sometimes to believe there is. So my hope is if I can educate you, inform you, I can help you to see it objectively, accurately, give you the full picture, present to you the entire scope of the issues associated with cannabis use, you're going to make a good decision. And what would that decision be? Hopefully, it's to seek help. Hopefully, it's to be able to sit down with somebody, such as myself, if you were to get to the place of needing it, and be able to talk about such things as these. That's level one, for those of you who have hung in there throughout the entirety of this particular series of podcasts on substance use. Outpatient treatment. Again, we don't necessarily presume intoxication withdrawal potential, but it could be there, that it's always going to be there. But most time, by the time you get to outpatient, there's a chance of that. There may just be abuse, may just be problems that come up as a result of using that you have to contend with. As far as biomedical conditions, yes, it could be that there might be need for help with that or that there's a condition that somehow connects with one's use of cannabis uh, and that we want to make sure that the medical services that adequately treat that. And I should say that can be outside of behavioral health. It can be just general health concerns. Should be maybe in that dimension looked at mostly from just the general health concerns. But then the behavioral health concerns also overlap. Speaking of emotional behavioral dimension three, we would presume that there is adequate behavioral health services being provided or no need for such that we're just going to be dealing with the cannabis or the problems associated with the cannabis, that the person would be ready for change, hopefully not impaired, not into too much denial, Although many people come to, particularly when it comes to cannabis, historically, have come to treatment because there's been also then associated legal complications or work circumstances that have driven them to come see a clinician to receive that treatment. Uh, It impairs their ability to work, and and somebody gave them a urine test or smelled it and then gave them a urine test, them using the pot and then gave them the urine test or had it done, and it came back positive. And in a level or any level being risk for impairment, which we can't allow. Certainly in certain safety-sensitive occupations, it's impermissible. You can't do that. Driving 
a semi, you should not be impaired. We would presume that as far as relapse and continued use, to mention five, that the person has some capacity to maintain abstinence with minimal support. And then as far as living environment, the recovery environment is supportive or has coping skills implicit. Again, you're not going to have much success on an outpatient basis if the person has too many complications or their use has become at least demonstrated itself historically through experience that they're not able to stop, you can provide outpatient care, but the likelihood of arresting it becomes less and less. Now, do people get admitted to the hospital or inpatient for cannabis use disorder alone? Probably not. Mostly the penal system probably is the closest thing. Uh, being put on probation, losing your job, being put on some sort of probationary status at work so that you don't lose your job, that's probably uh, more the, in the idea or along the line of restrictive treatment options. That really then becomes the dimension of restriction or the aspect of restriction. Uh, hospitalization usually has that component. Folks can go to uh, intensive outpatient treatment, which, again, for those of you who have heard the podcast previously or listened to the podcast previously and this particular series on substance misuse or substance use disorders, knows that's just a little bit more intense outpatient. They come more frequently. People can also go to partial hospitalization, which is even more intense, more restrictive than is intensive outpatient. But the idea is that if you're going to treat it, you have to understand it and how it all fits together. And hopefully, as with, again, a good diagnosis and then corresponding treatment plan, we have to begin to identify the resources that are available. Another very common intervention that kind of goes along of maybe more restrictive uh, adjunct to outpatient, even IOPs, intensive outpatient programs or outpatient treatment, or even partial hospitalization is some sort of recovery program. Traditionally, it's been, again, 12 steps. There's a lot of variations of that out there, but they have the central theme of peer support, sponsorship, regular attendance, the social dimension, accountability, allowing those who know what it's like to have the problem to continue to encourage sobriety in the best manner that is available. Sometimes it's confrontation, combination, confrontation, and support, again, encouraging sobriety. Now, there are halfway houses. Most often, though, folks don't go there, except that they would have, again, a comorbid condition, or they might have what we have historically, or at least not historically, but previously called polysubstance use disorders, where you have more than one, cannabis might be one of many, same with residential treatment, et cetera, et cetera. But to really treat 
Cannabis use disorders, you have to have an admission that it exists. With that, hopefully a motive, a reason, a cause. And then assisting the person to come up with better alternatives. I always refer, if it's anxiety, let's use that as an example. Uh, The person smokes pot, uses cannabis to avoid those feelings of anxiety or to cope with whatever they perceive to be the cause of their anxiety. And that may or may not be accurate. It may just be coincidental. Oh, well, when I am in social situations, I'm anxious. Well, maybe so, but really you're anxious to begin with. Social situations just represent an opportunity or for a a circumstance that promotes more anxiety. (laughs) But we begin to uh, unpack it. I use the word parse it. Uh, We have to separate the different factors. We have to empirically, objectively evaluate them. We have to use empiricism. Maybe sometimes I have to educate on how to be empirical, how to not live in denial, how to not run away from a problem. Hang in there with me while I talk about this. I know your inclination and what you've historically there, true, historical, have done with this is to run from it, but you have to stay with me. There's an accountability. You have to come in. We have to talk about it. You have to be able to go to your meetings. These adjuncts that go along with helping outpatient so they can continue to remind you to face it. Don't run from it. Face it. Don't run from it. Deal with it. Don't run from it. I can teach you how to manage your stress as long as you keep coming in. I can help you to cope with your anxiety Cognitive behavioral strategies and techniques. Uh, Again, one of the most researched and um, proven theories, basis for psychological counseling, is cognitive behavioral approaches. Dialectical behavior therapy has and is continuing to gain much traction in the same sort of way. Evidence-based treatment interventions, but you have to come in and you can't go around pretending like you don't have a problem and you can't buy into, well, everybody does it. It's just the way we all cope. I'll refer you to a medical specialist, which I'm not. My doctorate is not in medicine. I'll send you to a medical specialist, one who writes prescriptions, can be a psychiatrist, can be a nurse practitioner, primary care physician, and we'll explore the use of medicines that are FDA approved to treat anxiety, which is all much better than what got you into my office in the first place, which is relying on cannabis, particularly the THC. I say particularly the THC because it's probably time. I keep saying we're going to. It's time. Because in the next podcast, we're going to discuss cannabinoids, which offers much hope for those of you who are sold on the notion that it must be really organic. You have to be able to grow it and dig it up and refine it out of a natural plant. 
but removes the THC and leaves behind the cannabinoids, the CBD, which shows much promise in treatment of many conditions, ailments. <laughs> that range from inability to sleep, certainly anxiety, to even some pain management. But you have to come in for care before I can really tell you about those things. Or you have to join us on the next podcast, which is probably a good stopping point for today's podcast, at least an opportunity or segue. Of course, I'd love to hear from you. You can find my email address on the title page of The Word or Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And again, the best spirit of why we're doing the podcast, I'm doing the podcast, we, you're listening to the podcast, doing it with me, is so I can educate you. Knowing, being aware, gives you options. And the great hope would be you'd pick a better one than to continue a path or a pattern of maladaptive coping that makes you worse. And that really is the greatest selling point for treatment, as well as coming back and listening to the podcast. So next podcast, we'll discuss cannabinoids. Again, thank you for joining me, Dr. Michael David Clay, on The Word or on Word. And uh, again, like to invite you back for our next podcast. In the meantime, I wish everybody well.